Uh, just uh, glad to have you here. Uh, today, oh, you need some help with that. We're going to do things a little bit different, as you see. And, uh, and Hannah's actually going to be uh, drawing, uh, so illustrating the sermon as, as we go. You guys see it on that side? Yep. Great. Okay. And if it's hard to see, we've got it played out in the back, too, in, in Palmer Hall. If it's hard to see, there are more seats in here as well. Um, but um, in, the, uh, in the, the realm of, of, of apologies, or not apologies, but maybe just sort of preparing you, if you're a guest um, here at, at FCBC, and you're going to hear this uh, sermon, and you might say, wow, that is a, they, they really preach uh, the, the hard part of, of God here. And, um, and when we think about, there, there are some hard parts of scriptures, and, and we're going to be today in, in page 1012 of, of, your, uh, of the Red Cube Binders, uh, Bibles, we're in the book of uh, James, chapter 3. And the first 12 verses of uh, James, chapter 3, which is what we're in, are difficult verses. Uh, there are parts of the Bible, you probably heard, you know, Psalm 23, which are very comforting and, 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 and warming. And you might say, well, is this really a loving God we're talking about in James chapter 3? And we, we, we are. And to sort of illustrate that, I'm going to pick on, on one of our, our, our senior saints, Tom Gagne, uh, which I, I didn't tell I was going to call out. But Tom Gagne used to be a recruiter for the National Guard. And if you were to go a few years back into Tom Gagne's office and say, hey, uh, I see that the only spots open are infantry, but I really want to be a dentist. And, and, uh, and, and, and I really, I'm worried about going to war. And Tom was to say, oh, don't worry. You know, this is the National Guard, we can do anything. You just sign right here as an infantryman and, and you'll never go to war. We'll get you to dental school, right? That might sound very comforting, but it wouldn't be true and it wouldn't be loving. Now, Tom never would have done that, right? But, but uh, so if, if we were to tell uh, just the, the warm and, and fuzzy parts of scripture and not talk about the difficult ones, that would not be loving. And so we're in James chapter three today, uh, and, and we're gonna be talking about it. Pastor James here has got some, some difficult words to say. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for uh, this, this morning, for this opportunity to dive into your, your scripture and, uh, and to hear tough words uh, but also in the context of James, to hear your hope for, uh, for these difficult things. Um, may I speak your words of truth. May we hear and apply your words of truth uh, in the knowledge of your love and, and salvation that you provide. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So again, we're in James chapter 3, uh, in, in the verses 1 through 12. And it starts with, not many of you should become teachers, my brother, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Uh, do what I say, not what I do, right? We probably, some of us have said that, probably most of us have heard that uh, before from a spouse, a friend, a, ch a child, a teacher, um, and it, it, saying, I know I'm doing something that's contrary to what I say, I believe, but I want you to listen to what I'm telling you uh, to do. So from chapter 1 
of, of James as we've gone through this. Uh, verse 22, which is, it says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your hearts. Uh, James has been challenging people, saying, what you say you believe, you don't really do. Right? You say that you love people, but you show partiality, and, and you honor people uh, that, you, that maybe you shouldn't be honoring, and you show dishonor to people that you should uh, be honoring in, in love. And then in, in, in chapter 2, he gets more into, and, and you don't have the actions to back up what you say you believe. And so a person might be tempted, well, just, just do what I say then, not what I, not what I do. And now he's going to call out and says, well, let's, let's take a look at what you say. He says, uh, you say you have saving faith, but let's see what your tongue really says. They're biting words. I think that they would have stung the original audience. I think they will sting us a little bit today. But James doesn't let up. He says, he, he says some hard words, knowing that scripture tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brother, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. He's, he's not saying that there's a lot of perfect men out there who are able to do so. He's saying that somewhat sarcastically, somewhat bitingly, saying, saying if you can do this, then you're a perfect person. You don't need to listen to anything more I've got to say. But we know that that's not us. Many of us want to take on the role of teachers because we find that it's easier to speak than it is to do. Over these next several verses, though, James is going to show us that these haughty words these, that, that we can bring up, that we can talk about that, that not just the words we know are unrighteous, but even the ones that we portray or we present as righteous betray our hearts. And so to those who say, do what I say, not what I do, he said, let's take a look at what you say. And as he does so, he uses his own words as a teacher to deliver this stinging rebuke to those of us who have double-minded tongues that betray our untransformed, our double-minded hearts. And so the sermon in a, in a nutshell for today is that a double-minded heart reveals an double-minded tongue uh, uh, reveals an untransformed heart because it leads in wicked directions. It wreaks wicked effects. It reveals a wicked source. So he says, you want to be teachers of Christ's transforming gospel, yet your double-minded tongues reveal an untransformed heart. He's giving a warning that against many becoming teachers, and, 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 and we can infer that there was a problem in these churches to which he was writing among people who wanted to teach even though they were not fit or equipped, whether morals or, or faith or temperament or maybe just knowledge to do that teaching. And so the meaning of the second half though, of, of, uh, of verse one, that we know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness it is subject to some disagreement among teachers. And maybe this shows a warning that, that as we get ready to teach, we ought to really know, we ought to really believe, we ought to really practice uh, what we are teaching. And, and it's, it, what is clear, though, is he switches from this first person, or I mean the second person, that you, right, not many of you should want to become teachers, and says, we who teach, that first person, will be judged with greater strictness. 
Some understand this, that, that teachers will be subject to greater penalties for sins, particularly the, their sinful teachings. Others think that it just means that we will be held to a stricter standard. And then another, which I've begun to favor, is the interpretation that teachers, including me, including many of you, because our teachings use the power of the spoken word, the power of the tongue, that we, with that tongue that is so difficult to control, we will expose ourselves to higher risks of judgment. There's an additional risk, and then there's a responsibility of possibly leading others into sin. This seems especially compelling in the context of the verses, again, more of James' teachings, which follow, in which he uses multiple metaphors. And this is why I've asked uh, Hannah to come up and, and draw today, because they're just these rich illustrations that he's going to use to show the immense power of the tongue to lead us astray and to cause hellish effects. And what an untamed or a double-minded tongue says about our heart. So the first thing he says is that your double-minded tongues lead in wicked directions. Hear this. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by a strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. We all, even the greatest teachers of faith, will stumble. James knew that he would stumble. He tells us this stumbling is often coming in the words that we speak. In fact, he writes, if you were somehow able to not stumble in what you say, you would be a perfect person, able to bridle your whole body. And he keeps this going forth, this metaphor of the bridle in the mouth of the, of the horse. Right? He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they have we guide their whole bodies as well. My daughters, like, like many uh, uh, others in, in our congregation, started riding horses when they were really small. And, and as a father watching your four-year-old, 35-pound daughter get the, on this 1,100-pound, or actually one of them was like a 1,500, 1,600-pound craft horse, and get it to go left and right and even back up and do what it was supposed to do, all, all with this tiny little bit in, in the mouth of the horse, just a little bit of, of, of uh, pressure on that. They could get these huge beasts to do what they wanted to, most of the time. It's, it's a pretty simple concept. Wherever the head goes, the body will follow. And, and the tongue it will lead the head. And the bit will guide that tongue or that mouth. James says when we put bits in our mouths or into a mouth of a horse, we will guide their whole body as well. He uses the same illustration with a ship. I know we have folks out here who, who, who like boats, and, and it doesn't take much of a rudder right, to, to move. If you, if you paddle the canoe, too, not much of the paddle in the water will turn that canoe left or right. Where the tongue goes, the body will follow in the same way. And the one who controls that tongue, who controls that mouth, will control that body. Scripture tells us clearly that, that, that all of us willingly put our bodies under the submission of one of two powers, only one of two powers, and that those who do not 
submit themselves to God are instead submitting themselves to the, the control of what Scripture calls that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. How tragic that the one who so often controls the tongue is not the father of lights, but the father of lies. And when our tongue is controlled by Satan, our body follows that wickedness. Because as James writes, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And this translates a little bit clumsily into English. So the, the English... It, it, we hear the word boast, and we think that the, that the tongue is arrogant, saying things that it really can't do. But this, this word here, uh, and, and boast used elsewhere, including in James, really means that. But this word particularly in this verse is only found in this verse in the entire New Testament. And what it really means is that it's talking of things that it can do. Uh, a better reading might be the tongue is small compared to the rest of the body, but of what significant powers it can boast. A powerful, double-minded tongue guided by the power of hell not only leads us to wicked places, but it wreaks wicked effects because our double-minded tongues wreak wicked effects. They cause terrible things to happen. He says in the next verse, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small flame. Several wildfires are currently burning in the Northwest United States. As I wrote the sermon, and, and uh, with the rain we don't have to worry about it, but earlier in this week, we could actually see smoke in New Hampshire from the largest of those fires out in Oregon. The bootleg fire there had already covered 600 square miles, more than half the size of Rhode Island. 2,500 miles away, we were seeing it smoke. Right now, uh, this year, over two and a half million uh, acres have burnt. One of the biggest fires uh, seasons in history. Most of those fires started relatively small. Some of them started by natural means. Some of them started by deliberate arson. And some of them started by what Smokey Bear warned us against, right? Careless use of fire. Those of us who burn brush fires in the in, in the um, winter, know that it just takes a little bit of fire and, and some dry tinder, and all of a sudden you have this conflagration, right? This huge flame that is burning everything. It seems like you could see it from space sometimes. It's the same way with our tongues. Sometimes we intentionally set fires with our tongues, with our words, and sometimes we do it with careless or, or reckless words. But whatever our intent, the, the effect is the same as, as Hannah's drawing with this horse, kicking over the lamp, right? It, it breaks and the oil pours forth. And all of a sudden, this small fire that was so well contained breaks forth and wreaks tremendous effects. As James says, in the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind but no human being can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison these are pardon the pun scorching 
words from James. He doesn't pull any punches. The double-minded tongue stains the whole body. It, it destroys all in its path, and it is driven by the, the power of hell itself. It is a restless evil. It has the power, even the purpose, to kill. And if you think that James is exaggerating here, we only need to read the headlines. Matter of fact, many, maybe most, maybe all of you know somebody personally who has heard hurtful words, has taken them to heart, has lost hope, and taken their own life. Driven to despair by the poison of the tongue that killed them just as much as if we had put poison in their drink. Think about a recent time that you said something that really hurt or could hurt another person, whether you meant that effect or not. Whether you said it to that person or maybe to a third person in gossip. Maybe you don't have to go back too far. It's ours for me. Now think about the motives that are behind or that were behind those words. Be honest about it. When I think back to some of these times, my first response is to say, well, it was just for that person's good. I was just trying to help him. Just trying to make sure that, that he didn't go the wrong way or, 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 or that she knew what the truth really was. But if I'm honest with myself, most of the time my motives are not pure at all. They're driven by unrighteous anger, personal pride, or maybe even a selfish desire that that person would hurt as much as I do. We'll read next week. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's the power of hell setting my tongue on fire. Think also how your tongue has stained your life. Have you been known for obscenities, for coarse jokes, off-color talk, maybe even blasphemous words? Have you spoken lies rather than truth? Have you spoken the easy rather than the hard? Have you spoken words of life instead, building up and spurring on others? Or have you spoken death that tears down and discourages? The untamed heart stains our whole body, sets on fire the entire course of life, and it is set on fire by hell. And that untamed, double-minded heart reveals not only that the wrong person has the reins and, the, and that we're wreaking wicked effects with it, but it ultimately points that it has a wicked source. Our double-minded tongues reveal that we have wicked sources for those tongues. Because with it, James writes, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Does, can a fig tree, my brothers, produce or bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Years ago, I was being uh, discipled 
by a man named Jack, Jack Hill. And one day, as I walked into our meeting at the restaurant we met in, I was fuming. I was angry. I had just come from work. I was furious at a person with whom I worked who had treated others very poorly. Uh, indeed, this guy had, had been awful. I mean, sinful, malicious. It had been bad. He had acted without integrity, and he had hurt many people in the process. And I should have been angry. But I was not filled with the righteous anger that a, that a Christ follower should hold. And when Jack asked me how I was doing, expecting, I think, something different, um, I was filled with the indignant righteousness of a Pharisee. And I unloaded on Jack. I told him about all the evil that this guy had done and how evil this guy was and how disgusting his conduct was and how angry I was about it. And Jack said two things. The first was very helpful. It sounded very encouraging, actually. Uh, it's, it's something that when I remember to, to apply this principle has really changed the way that I look at people who are caught up in sin. He said, Pat, remember, he's not the enemy. He's the victim of the enemy. That's encouraging. That's building up. That's spurring up. And then the second thing he said just stung. <laughs> he said this. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? He's quoted that. Jack was a navigator. He <laughs> memorized a lot of scripture. That's all he had to say. And I went, Wow. Then he explained it a little bit further, and he said, the bitterness of your words, Pat, is, ex is exposing bitterness in your heart. Ouch. He said that in a public place, by the way. <laughs> People in the booth right next to us. Ouch. I don't know what they were thinking. I thought they were here for a Bible study. That didn't seem very nice. Yeah. Whether the person about whom you are speaking is saved or not, that person was made in the likeness of God. The living and holy God, the Father of lights, the Most High, the righteous Lord. We can and should curse the sin that is present in all of our lives. And we ought to start with the logs that are in our own eyes. But when we curse rather than bless another person, we are betraying evil in our hearts. Because as we read, heard from our scripture that Martha read today from Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person. Friends, Jesus said that the words we speak come from the abundance of our hearts. So what does your tongue say about its source? Can you confess with me that our tongues speak words of, of false witness, slander, derision, envy, deceit, hypocrisy, bitterness, and even violence. Let's start with the easy ones. What adjectives, what attitudes come to you? Do your tongues normally apply 
to a Yankees fan? What about a driver with a Massachusetts plate? <laughs> Those are easy ones. But do your tongues join in using times that, terms that divide us by local geography, like redneck, hick, flatlander, townie, or city slicker? Do we look down at others' age groups? Boomers, millennials, Gen Xers, is it even possible to find a God-honoring way to use these terms the way that they are today? Snowflake, Karen. What terms do you use for someone who, who expresses their sexuality differently, who has a different orientation, different preference, has maybe decided on a new identity for themselves? What do you use for a person that doesn't look like you, doesn't come from the same place? Is it immigrant here, uh, legally or illegally, a person who's a refugee from their own land. There are appropriate ways to talk about radical agendas, racism and bigotry. Murderous ideologies like communism and fascism ought to be condemned. But let's be honest with ourselves. When we hear and use terms like racist, bigot, radical, communist, fascist, extremist, and zealot? Do, do we do that in a way that is honoring to Christ or reflective of the father of lies? Two terms I've heard from people who claim the name of Christ that really make me cringe. Libtard, Rathuglican. Can, can a salt pond yield fresh water? Sometimes we're more subtle in our use of double-minded tongues that betray our double-minded hearts. We speak words that are meant to tear down and, and, and instead of us having to, to take ownership of the meanness of them. Say, she can't help it, she's, she's special. Or, and I know we've got some folks uh, visiting from, from down south, right? Bless his heart. Beloved, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And here's some other things he says through his scripture. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion is that it may give grace to those who hear. If you do not commit adultery and do not murder, but do speak with an unbridled tongue, you have become a transgressor of the law. James writes, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So I point at you guys doing that. All I've got three more fingers pointing back at me about that. Accountable to all of it. Guilty of all of it. Who Paul writes in another letter, will save us from this body of death. And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's why there is no hope in verses 1 through 12. There is so much 
hope in the context in which James writes this and in the context of Scripture. So praise God that he who commands those of real faith to be transformed also promises that he will transform us, that he will remove our hearts of stone to transform them into hearts of flesh, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, and that those who put their hope in him will be made pure, because real faith transforms the tongue by replacing its master by taming its power and transforming its source. Real faith transforms the tongue because it replaces the tongue's master. Real faith changes who holds the reins, who holds the tiller. When we learn what real love is, when we stop just believing what God is and start believing in him, we start to hand control of our tongues over to him. In Romans 10, we, we, we read that this first begins when we confess our faith. It says when we confess that Jesus is Lord. And we know that even this elemental act of obedience is itself a gift of God. Something that only happens when the Spirit of God guides us through the voice of his Son. As Jesus said, no one can come to, me, to the Father except through the Father who has sent me. Or, I'm sorry, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. But when we do that first little bit of obedience that he grants us, our whole body begins to follow in that same direction. Where the Spirit guides our mouths, our bodies will follow. As our mouth confesses, our heart begins to believe. And then we start to bear evidence of that faith. But it doesn't end there. And Satan doesn't give up easily. He continually seeks a way to lead us away from, to, from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. How do you see that in your life? Like a horse, does temptation come in the way of a, a rattling grain bucket? Or, or playing to your lusts, your addictions, your desires, luring and enticing you with your appetites? Does it come in flattering words to puff you up with pride? Does it come like a cracking whip, distracting you with fear? Does temptation come with the herd that calls you to follow them? How does Satan fight for controls of the reins? How does he tempt you to refuse to submit to the good shepherd? Praise God that God doesn't give up easily either. And once we truly ask him to take the reins, while we may fight to pull them back from him, God will not let them go. Again, I'm not a horseman. I'm father to a couple. It's something they've taught me. Um, and those of you who have been here for a couple years know that I haven't learned it very well. Gotten hurt trying to do it. But something they've taught me is that the goal is to use a very light touch with those reins. There may be times when the horse has lost its head, has gone off in, in, into danger or is bringing you into danger. And you may need to do that emergency stop, right, where you reach down and pull that rein up hard. Maybe you've experienced God doing that in your own life. But if you're always yanking on the reins, all you're going to do is create a hard mouth horse. At other times, I've watched my daughters stop trying to guide the horse and let him have his head. And, and, and let him run out his energy, get himself into a lather, and when he finally gives in, then they can teach him. Again, maybe you've had that experience in your life. 
Yet if you always give the horse his head, you'll encourage him to be that one that is unpredictable, that's to the point of being dangerous. And so I've learned this, that the best way for a horse, whether it's a hard-mouthed horse, a wild horse, a hot one, the best way to teach that horse to follow your, your guidance, to submit to your reins, is to build a relationship with it, for that horse to learn to trust you. Praise God that God is the God of relationships. To use another illustration from Scripture, he is the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. He's the one who says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And through that gentle and lowly heart, the, the light hand on the reins, we find that when we submit to Christ in true faith, that this faith not only changes our tongue's master, but as we begin to trust him, it tames the tongue's power. And that matters because as James tells us next, the tongue not only guides us, but can also have dramatic effects on ourselves and in the world around us. Real fame or real faith tames the tongue's power. Real faith, the faith that is filled with the same kind of steadfast, loving kindness that God himself exhibits, considers the impact of our words. It considers the tongue's disproportionate power to heal and to destroy. As the proverb says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Real faith believes and even shudders at Jesus' words. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. Yet even as real faith considers the tongue's power and its need to be tamed, it also confesses our inadequacy to do that. Just as we are powerless to control our own desires, we are powerless to tame our own tongues. And even if we want them to change, to make them heal rather than to destroy, to exhort rather than accuse, to, to, to convict rather than condemn, to praise rather than blaspheme, our tongues are restless evils. They're full of deadly poison and they cannot be tamed by human effort. And this offends the pride of a moralist. And all of us are moralists, at least at some times. Those who believe in a gospel of works, those who believe that all we need to do is just do enough good to override our evils. We are people of great reputations, upstanding in the community, honored with titles, and maybe even the good seats in the assembly, like other well-appointed people. Certainly we can tame our tongues, be perfect people, but this restless evil will not be tamed by human power. It might be restrained temporarily, or even take on the appearance of being tamed, but if so, it is only biding its time. It's waiting for the opportunity for its deadly poison of lies, flattery, blasphemy, obscenity, gossip, innuendo, and slander to take their effect. Even for those of us who seek to delight the law of God in our inner beings, the tongue is set among our members, Members in which another law wages war against the law of our mind and making us captive to the law of sin that dwells in those members. Wretched human beings that we are, who will deliver us from this body of death? And again, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, because we cannot tame our tongue. 
But instead, we need to confess our inadequacy, relinquish the values of the world, embrace those of the kingdom, and hand control over to the only one who can tame the tongue and save our bodies, this body of death. Praise to him that when he does, he tames our tongue by transforming its source. Real faith transforms the, the source first by releasing salt, the salt water that's in our heart through confession, lament, and tears. How do these salt ponds become fresh springs? One way is by releasing the salt water out of them. Are you carrying the salt water of sin in your heart? James tells us that we all stumble in many ways. And elsewhere, he says that uh, we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This sin stains our whole body. It makes us unholy before the holy God. It makes us worthy only of condemnation and death. In a few weeks, you're going to hear James' exhortation for, those of us, uh, for, for us to confess our sins to one another. In John, we read, or 1 John, we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Perhaps as we, as we confess our sin through tears, that impure water, salt water, in our hearts empties a little bit and our hearts are transformed. Are you carrying the, the salt water of injury, of bitterness, depression, hopelessness, fear, other kinds of pain? At the beginning of the service, Josh read from Psalm 120 in which David cries out about how hurt he is by the deceitfulness of tongues. God commands us to do just what he did, to cry out to him, to lament. And when we do, again, often with our tears, some of that salt water in our hearts leaks out a bit. Our hearts are transformed a bit more. And then real faith pours living water into our hearts. He doesn't just empty the salt water out of our hearts, but he puts fresh water into them. If you'll turn back a few pages with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, we read this a little bit better. We read about, in John chapter 4, about Jesus coming intentionally to meet with a person a lot like you and me, a sinner, an outcast, a woman by the well, an adulteress who had her mind set on the things of the world rather than the things of heaven. And so he comes up to her and he, and, and, uh, he asks her for a drink and she asks him a few questions about why would you ask this of me? And then he says this in John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Do you know the gift of God? Do you know Jesus? Not just know about him, but do you know him? Then stop using your tongue against him. Instead, ask him, and he will give you this living water which will transform your heart's source or your tongue's source. If you don't know Jesus, would you ask one of us not only to introduce you to him, to tell you about him, but to introduce you to him as a friend, 
as your Savior so that he can give you this same living water. And then hear this about this living, what this living water can do. It doesn't just pour in, but it gushes forth. And so a little bit further in verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water, of this water, looking at the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will be come in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If we have real faith, our hearts will be transformed by God. From salt ponds into fresh fountains, from thorn bushes into grapevines, from stone to flesh. And the water that comes from these fountains, from these grapevines that are, that are grafted to the master vine in Christ, out of these transformed hearts will pour out to others through our lives, through our actions, and through our words, more of this living water. So here's the hope in this. Imagine a tongue that was guided not by hell, but by Christ. The one who is gentle and lowly in heart, who promises to guide us by streams of living water and to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Can you put your trust in him to do just that? Imagine a tongue that is set on fire, not by the fires of hell, but by the same Holy Spirit who manifested himself upon scared and timid apostles as tongues of holy fire. Imagine how that small fire might divide itself as, as tongues among the members of our body. This congregation here in Loudoun, as it did in that room, that first body of believers, and catch on to the tender of our hearts, just like it did with theirs, and cause them to burst forth out of that room. Right? It, it was so intense, they had to leave the room and proclaim as witnesses the glory of Christ with their tongues. And they set the city on fire for Christ. Imagine what it would look like if that fire grew from Loudon, not by waves of crackling flames and black smoke, but waves of uplifted arms. Voices giving glory to God who created us, the Son who redeems us, and the Spirit who empowers us. Imagine that all of this might start by you holding up the reins of your tongue and praying that Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, would take them and that you would humble yourself to submit to the guidance of the one who is gentle and lowly in heart and ask that he would transform the salt pond of your heart into a spring of living water. Let's pray just that. God, uh, not many of us should become teachers. That scripture is uh, intimidated me quite a bit. Lord, I know that I stumble in many ways. 
I know I'm not the person who can say that, that I don't stumble in what I say, that I'm a perfect person able to bridle my whole body. I am not. I confess that even in the, even in the last few hours that I have used words that have, uh, that have betrayed a tongue set on fire by hell and not by you, that have betrayed an evil source, And I thank you that you continue to douse those flames and, and set this tongue on fire again for you. May we all confess where our tongues have not brought honor to you, but instead have stained our bodies and set on fire the entire course of life. How they have, they have hurt rather than helped. How, how they have condemned uh, rather than uplifted. Lord, we confess that sometimes our, our tongues have shown their evilness by being silent in the face of injustice. By failing to speak when they should speak. But so often we know that our sin comes because we are quick, quick to speak and slow to listen instead of being slow to speak and quick to listen. Lord, we confess that we are unable to tame our tongues this restless evil. Um, and we give you glory that you are able. And so, Lord, would you take the reins of our tongues? Would you, would you take control of them? And would you give us the grace to be obedient, to submit to your guidance, to learn to trust you, to respond to your commands, to to trust where you are leading us, to trust that the words that you give us are the ones that we are supposed to say, and, and to just live in the humble obedience of, of following uh, you in all of our days, giving glory to you through the things we say, through the things we do, through the thoughts we have. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Please, difficult times uh, for many of us, especially uh, those of us who are parents of older uh, um, youth, uh, when, when uh, youth go back to school and, uh, and leave. And, and so we are just thankful for our young uh, folks who have been uh, uh, leading us with worship, uh, who have been contributing in so many ways. And uh, uh, hopefully today gave us sort of a vision of all the different ways that our youth have been participating. And, uh, and also, I just want to say that, that um, they getting to see a few of their practices, how they prepare, how they, how they uh, even decide on the music uh, to, to play, um, how they work together and build each other up, has really given me hope that our tongues can indeed be steered uh, by, by the one who, who wants to take the reins and, and who wants to guide us in the right way. So... Praise God for the way they have done that and how they have led us by, by getting our tongues to proclaim uh, the truths of, of, of God and, and singing glory to him. Amen. Hear this from Psalm 19 as we go. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May our words, may the words of our mouths, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to the sight of our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Go in peace.